The following is a hoop bowl presentation. What is up, everybody? It is the Hoopball Clippers podcast. Brandon Marcus here. You are there listening as we have another tremendous guest on tap today. Andrew Greif of the LA Times, the beat writer for the Clippers, will join us. He'll give us some great insight into the team. We'll talk about Chauncey Billups and whether he will become the new TV analyst because a lot of reports are saying that is done and Tyron Liu supposedly joining the Clippers staff as well. Curious to see what his hire means for the staff, how great it is to have several point guards on the staff, and what that means for Landry Shamit's development. And also we'll find out from Andrew what the 24 hours were like when the Paul George and Kawhi news dropped, because Andrew was in Vegas covering the Summer League when that news happened. Um, you'll find out if he was awake or not when that news dropped, and what it was like for him to write about that huge deal that brought Paul George to the Clippers and obviously the Kawhi free agency news as well, since both dropped at the same exact time. Hope you're able to continue following us. At Hoopball Clips is the Twitter handle. My Twitter handle is at BD Marcus. Brandon Marcus is the name. At BD Marcus is the Twitter handle. Also, Hoopball Fantasy. At Hoopball Fantasy. You can follow all the content there. I know the draft guide is supposed to come out pretty soon here. So, uh, fantasy basketball right around the corner. But we'll not be just a fantasy site here. We're going to be talking just Clippers basketball. You'll get to find out everything about the Clippers throughout the season and obviously the offseason as well. So without further ado, let's get into our conversation with Andrew Greif. All right, I'm very pleased to welcome in this fella, Andrew Greif. I pronounced that correctly, right, Andrew? Because I know it says in your Twitter profile, you pronounce it G-R-I-F-E and we're going to get along fine. That's correct, right? <laughs> that is correct. He right. does a very fine job. Yeah, there, there you go. Well, Andrew used to be the beat reporter at the Oregonian. And then he joined the L.A. Times in September of 2018. He is the winner of the National Sports Media Association Oregon Sports Writer of the Year Award in 2017. And now he does a tremendous job covering the L.A. Clippers. And he's joining the Hoopball Clippers podcast. Andrew, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Hey, thanks for coming on. Uh, let's talk some Clippers basketball first. I want to talk about a couple of things that are in the news and want to see what update you have on them. First of all... Uh, Chauncey Billups, there has been a rumor that I believe you have now confirmed that he is going to be the color commentator, the analyst with Brian Seaman on Clippers TV broadcast. What do we know about Chauncey Billups getting that role? And I know you mentioned that he's also going to be doing ESPN as well, right? Yeah, it's a new, new York Post reported. Um, I think that what it seems like is that uh, there might be a couple analyst roles on television broadcasts this year for the Clippers. I don't sense that um, if, if Chauncey is going to call games for ESPN still, um, I that would seem to indicate that he won't be available for every Clippers game potentially. Um, at least that's my read of it. And so I think that there could be a possibility that the analyst rotates among a couple different voices. Who those other voices are, not really sure, 
but um, that's what they did last year during Ralph Lawler's final season. That they brought back a lot of you know former people he used to call games with, um, you know faces that people knew. Bill Walton, uh, Corey McGetty, Cheryl Miller, I think worked a couple. So I don't necessarily anticipate it would be that wide ranging uh, with that many kind of guest analysts, but. I do think that there's a, a pretty strong possibility that maybe, you know, one, two or three people could kind of fill in that role next to Brian. Obviously, they're shooting for the moon there with uh, Chauncey Billups. They wanted to get a big name. I know they tried to go after um, the female analyst, I believe, for the Brooklyn Nets. Um, and I'm assuming they struck out there. And so they went to Chauncey. Curious to get your take on them going for somebody like Chauncey as opposed to sticking with maybe a guy like Don McClain. Um, you know, Chauncey, he has a lot of name recognition for younger generation. Uh, I think that he was pretty well received with ESPN, at least um, very anecdotal evidence, at least what I saw. I thought he was um, someone who got gave pretty good takes, um, kind of like that, that former player perspective. So I think that obviously appeals. Um, you know, I don't, I, I'm, Don McClain's been someone who's been on that broadcast for a, a long time, and so there, maybe there is a chance where he still has a role moving forward. I'm not, I'm, I wouldn't rule that out just because I don't know that. But um, I think that they, clearly the, the having that former player in there is something that is valuable is, or is considered valuable because that's been kind of the standard analyst role. And you saw it with Don McLean, Corey McGetty last year. Um, I think that that's something that serves audiences pretty well. Do we have any idea when they're actually going to announce the broadcast team? Because I had Brian on the first episode of this podcast, and he still had not been formally announced as the TV replacement for Ralph Lawler. And obviously this Billups news comes out. Do we have any idea when that's going to come out? I don't. I I have no idea. Um, Perhaps, um, I mean, I don't really know that the entire team has been assembled yet. So I think that's probably whenever it is assembled, it could be, close to the season you know last year they did not announce um the entire broadcast team who was going to be guest hosting with ralph lawler until i believe the last week of september so potentially it's one of those things again wow so we might be waiting a while curious do you know anything about the radio side and how noah eagle became the guy um reportedly i'm not sure how he became the guy but um you know he obviously comes from uh, a lineage, a strong lineage of, of television broadcasters and broadcasters in general with his dad, Ian Eagle. Um, so I, I know that he worked some games for NBA TV recently uh, for the last couple years out of Syracuse. So clearly had moved up the ranks pretty quickly. And, um, you know, regardless of, of his father's career, clearly it seems like he's got um, a lot of merit in terms of how he's calling games. So I don't, I'm not sure kind of where that exactly the decision stemmed from, but he will be Brian's successor on the radio. Incredible. For a kid that I believe is 22 years old, that his first uh, NBA gig will be one with Paul George and uh, Kawhi Leonard. It's it's quite the uh, the feather on the cap there to start your NBA career. So good for him. Uh, wanted to talk about another guy, and uh, Tyron Lue, who has been on the Clippers staff before, and then he left to go join David Blatt's staff in Cleveland. Um, it was a possibility that he could be the guy coaching the Lakers, but that did not happen. Um, how close are we to finding out if Lou will be on the Clippers staff? And what do you think he's going to bring to the Clippers staff that they don't already have on that staff? 
Yeah, you know, it's a good question what he'll bring. I mean, obviously, there's a, a sense of experience about um, having won a title. You know, they now have some people on that staff, multiple people who've won an NBA title as a coach. Um, obviously, Doc Rivers, uh, Brendan O'Connor, an assistant coach who won with the Pistons in 2004 while he was assisting Larry Brown, Tyron Lue if he joins. So he gives one more person who kind of knows what it takes to take that leap from a contender to a champion. That's that's a big question, I think, for this team in general. Um, they have all the talent, but you know, it's it is a big step to go from a team that's in contention to a team that actually is hosting the Larry OB. Um, so I, I think that that would be a, a helpful kind of almost context, uh, maybe for players to kind of lean on, asking questions when he could be announced. Uh, I, I still think it's what I was told was that it's considered likely to happen, uh, but nothing was finalized as of last week. Both sides are still talking to one another, but um, it was considered that things were moving in a positive direction. So I, I don't have any update on that other than it's still, I would still assume that that will be um, something that does happen. What do you think is taking so long for that announcement? And are there any back and forths do you think going on about possible length of a contract? I know uh, Lakers fans are wondering how long that length of the contract will be since that was clearly a sticking point in the negotiations with the Lakers is that he didn't want to be tied necessarily to LeBron James and that once LeBron left, he would be out of a job. Um, are you hearing anything at all about the length of the contract for Tyron Lue? Nothing specifically, but I think that um, you know, flexibility is probably something that any assistant coach with head coaching ambition to get back into the head coaching game would want. So I assume that there will be a certain amount of flexibility that will be desired um, just in case something pops open. Um, that he can be, you know, go, go pursue that. Now, obviously, Doc Rivers is a really close friend of Tyron Liu, um, a, a champion of him. I mean, when, when he was uh, when he won the title in Cleveland, Doc said that that was maybe one of his proudest basketball moments. He wasn't even directly involved with it, other than um, Lou calling him a couple times and like you know picking his brain as a title-winning coach. But you know he was he said he still thinks that's one of his favorite moments because it was a guy who he helped bring into the league as a coach in 2011. Now you know ascend the mountaintop uh, five years later. So I, I think that whatever kind of Lou. Uh, wants i think that doc is gonna be a champion of that a supporter of that so i don't know what um kind of the discussions are talking about or centering on but i I think that lou is going to have tons of support within the clippers if he joins and you would think that even if the contract is three years and the clippers let's say win the title this year i'm sure lou would get a lot of looks as a head coach next year and i'm sure he'll be able to leave and it won't be a problem you you would think that would make a lot of sense right yeah, yeah, I would, I would think so. I absolutely would think so. I think that um, you know, you, you know, a lot of the assistant coaches have ambitions to be head coaches, and so um, if you can be associated with a title team, obviously it's going to help your personal case. And so I think that not only Ty, but um, I think other coaches would probably think, you know, hey, could I get a look somewhere else? Um, could this help me in my career? I think it's natural to think that for any staff, let alone a team like the Clippers. You know what I'm curious about? I don't really see many teams around the league that have two point guards on their staff with Sam Cassell and Tyron Lue being two point guards that would be on the staff. How interesting is that to you? Because you look at the Clippers and it seems like point guard is kind of a 
an open spot there. Obviously, they have Beverly who's going to run the point. You have a guy in Shamit that is continually learning the position, having played at Wichita State, and now he's going to be two and a one maybe with the Clippers. Um, and then obviously you have Lou Williams who plays both the one and the two. How rare do you think that is to have two point guards in the staff? Um, I'll let you answer that question first, and then we'll bring in the next question. Well, then you have you have three point guards because you think about Doc Rivers too. Uh, that's right, of um, course. You know, he, so th- th- it is heavy on on guard play and that experience in the backcourt, knowing what it takes. You know, Sam Cassell was really huge for Shea Gilgis Alexander's development last year. Um, those two worked together countless times for countless hours. I mean, Sam was always in Shea's ear. Sometimes, <laughs> you know that. Sam is, is hilarious and like he's always talking and you could tell it was like a big brother thing where sometimes Shea was like all right enough uh, but you knew that by the end of the season the reason why Shea was playing so well in the playoffs was because in part of Sam's coaching and his development um, he helped bring along John Wall and Bradley Beal in Washington with the Wizards uh, on that staff and he, uh, he helped turn around uh, Austin Rivers and make him a really dependable player at the Clippers so he had a pretty strong track record and Shea is kind of the latest guy. So I would think that, um, you know, as they try to maybe make Landry, a, a little, give him a little more look at the one, which like you said, he did do a Wichita state extensively. Um, I think that, you know, you could see Sam maybe shuffling over to his role and, and also maybe giving him some guidance, but there will be no shortage of point guard play, uh, point guard experience on the roster. How does that work when you have so many different, guys who have played that position as assistants and there's one guy for example they're trying to work on with Shamit because I know in college you have let's say a three assistants and one will work with the bigs one will work with the guards and then you'll have one that'll either float around or do something else how does that work in the NBA when you have a guy in Landry Shamit that's probably the only real project that you have at point guard that's going to be a major part of your rotation, and you have three coaches, one is the head coach and two assistants that are going to be working with him. You know, it's the, certain coaches are basically assigned to coach certain guys. And so, in fact, uh, Shannon's the coach who he worked with a lot since he was traded, and um, even this summer they worked together is Brendan O'Connor, um, not not one of those three point guards we talked with. So it's it really does... Um, they want to have each player feel like they have, uh, obviously they have access to the head coach and to any coach they want to talk with, but they're, they really are um, paired up with a certain assistant coach and those guys work in small groups with a certain amount of players. So that helps, I think their development, you have a consistent voice, you're not just, you know, getting advice from five different people or six different people. It's like you really have one consistent voice in your ear and that, I think, is how the Clippers have kind of targeted the development of a lot of their players. Uh, and sometimes those players, and it's like in midseason, all of a sudden there's a trade. Okay, uh, Landry comes in, and he's paired with an assistant coach. He doesn't really know him, but they work over time. And that's how I've observed the Clippers kind of taking skill development nearly down to a one-on-one level. And, and some guys aren't even like, the, you know, the full assistant coach. Like there's player development coaches um, who do a lot of that work too, a ton of that work pregame. If you go there two hours before a game, two and a half hours before a game, you'll see uh, some of the end of the bench guys on the court working out and they'll be putting through almost like a full two on two scrimmage. And a lot of the player development guys will be playing against them. So that's, um, that's, I think I, it seems to be fairly common across the NBA from what I can tell, but that's definitely the Clippers model. Interesting. Um, I want to go back about a month and a half 
and I want to find out what the 24 hours were like from when Paul George and Kawhi Leonard became Clippers to the next to that final 24 hours. So where were you when I'm assuming the Woj bomb dropped? Um, did you get any inclination before the Woj bomb? And what were the next 24 hours like? How late were you up that night? And uh, yeah, what was it like? Yeah, I think it was, I remember seeing Chris Haynes um, report first that Kawhi had accepted, that he had agreed to join. And then, of course, you start working. I was in my Las Vegas hotel room at Summer League. I happened to be on my computer. So I was actually pretty well positioned to start working immediately. Um, I didn't have to race back to my room like some people I, I knew. Um, and then, you know, I saw the Woj report that Paul George is coming. Okay, uh, let's make some calls about that. So I think I was up until about 3.30 or 3 that morning and then um, up around 6, making more calls. And, and that day was spent trying to piece together kind of how did this happen, um, that kind of story, almost like an autopsy. What, you know, what, what exactly happened here? So that was actually pretty fun because – you just knew there was so much interest in it. Um, the worst thing is to be covering a team that has no relevance and very few people care about. Well, obviously there was a lot of interest in what people cared about. So like the work was, it was fun. Like it didn't really seem like, um, I, I don't I wouldn't even know how many days, how many hours I worked that day, but it just kind of was a, a fun, thrilling day trying to piece the puzzle together. Um, and kind of realizing this whole next year, everything changed, right? Yeah. You know, when I joined the beat, they were the, you know, picked to win, I think, 35 games, and everyone seemed to respect them, but not really, like, they weren't really on anyone's radar, and then they uh, overachieved. Well, this year, they won't be sneaking up on anybody. So that's going to be a fascinating thing to see how, kind of how expectations change the team. What were you told to write about? Did your editor ask you to come from at it, come to it from a different angle than other people might, or did you know right away that you just had to write a basic article about how the trade happened and then kind of go from there? Yeah, I think that that because because obviously the Paul George part of the um, news was so unexpected. That's why it was initially was like okay, even from my end, I thought we, we have to write about how did this happen you know because it just it just came out of nowhere seemingly uh it was kept so quiet from from all ends oklahoma city from the clippers um that it was it was shocking and even executives around the league at summer league were like that blew me away <laughs> like they were caught off guard too maybe feel a little better um so that that was my what my editor kind of suggested was let's do a you know piece this thing together how did this happen that was my first instinct too Interesting. And then I, I want to kind of peel back the curtain just a little bit um, to find out something about sources, because I always found this interesting with reporters, because you are someone that is from Oregon, you went to Oregon, and then you worked to the Oregonian, and then you moved to LA, and you've been with the beat now for about a year, it could be in September, correct? Yeah, about 11 months right now, yeah. Yeah, so 11 months. So it's been probably about, I don't know, almost about 10 months once you uh, have this deal occur. What was it like to accrue those sources over those 10 months? Because you're obviously with the team at home and on the road because you're a beat reporter, so you're writing all over. It doesn't matter where the Clippers are. What was that like? And did, is it something you did right away where you were trying to get as close to as many people as possible and getting their phone numbers? And 
when did you kind of gauge, all right, this could be somebody that I could reach out to, to give me the inside scoop? I mean, I feel like it's just, it's just like anything. It's just a, like learning people's names. There's so many people around each organization you cover that it's literally just about like, Hey, you know, who are you? Here's who I am. Uh, who are you? Like, what do you do? And then I just have a lot of curiosity because I've never held these jobs before, you know, that these guys do and these women do. Um, so I just, I try to ask a lot of questions from like a very authentic place where it's like, can you like, what do you do in your job? You know, like I, I think people know what I do. Um, I just follow them around and write what happens. So it just, it just comes from a lot of very like simple, authentic conversations where it's just kind of getting to know people. Um, I don't, it's everyone I'm sure does it differently, but uh, that's, I think I just try to talk to people and get to know people. And they obviously know what your job is. I mean, your job is to cover the team and to give as much insight as possible. So are you trying to meet as many people in the front office as possible? Um, is it people within the team? Who gives, I mean, who is the most reliable person? Because I'm assuming you're not texting Doc Rivers to find out if a deal's happening. I'm, I'm not trying to get your sources because obviously that's the last thing you want to do. I'm just curious in terms of what type of people you kind of try and get close with that are in the know. I'll talk with anybody, like literally, like, I mean, uh, I love going around. That's why I love traveling around the team. Cause like you meet people from other teams and you meet people from the Clippers who are like, um, you know, not like the, the front facing people everyone thinks about, like you just get to know people. And it's, it's, that's why, like I said, the, the time on the road is really valuable, especially because you're just, yeah, I think that just showing up adds credibility, right? You know, once it, it's the 11 day road trip in February, people start to realize, okay, like, yeah, yeah, this guy's around all the time. So that's why um, I think just showing up and doing your job and um, that, that helps things because you just, there becomes like a name, a face recognition that happens. And especially I found that to be the case with teams that aren't the Clippers, with executives who aren't the Clippers, with players who aren't the Clippers, where it's just like, you know, people see you around and you just kind of start talking. And that's, I mean, I don't think it's like a huge uh, science to it. And at least how I approach it is just literally getting to know people. And that's not easy. I mean, someone could be like, oh, yeah, it's easy, you know, just covering a team. You just go and you talk to somebody. First of all, going up to talk to somebody random may not be easy for someone, although it might be very easy for somebody else. So it takes a special type of person to become a beat writer and to cover the team because it's exhausting. I mean, you're at the arena until past midnight on a lot of different nights covering the team. You're going and talking to the players after the game when the locker room opens, and then you're writing on deadline. I mean, it's not easy and it takes a special type of person. H how did you decide, you know what, this is what I want to do? Um, you know, I started I, out of college. Um, when I graduated, it was the recession and obviously you double the recession with trying to get in newspapers in the recession. And it was uh, obviously pretty difficult. So I started out of college on editing track where I just grabbed whatever job I could and it was copy editing. And, um, so, you know, those are, those are long shifts, you know, uh, 3.30 PM to 12.30 AM. So in some ways, beat writing, at least the hours, um, are not much different. Like you just, you just kind of grind at it. So I wouldn't say that this is something that was like, um, this has been a shock to the system in terms of the workload because, you know, I worked out of college, I would do the copy editing in the afternoon. In the morning, I'd freelance. I'd write for a basketball website, and I'd freelance for the AP. I'd freelance for the local newspaper in my college town. So there were some days where, you know, you kind of work from 
uh, 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. and then 3.30 p.m. to midnight for different outlets. And so it's just kind of, at least for me, because I didn't have, um, you know, this, this prime opportunity out of college where I went immediately to New York City or immediately to L.A. I just kind of had to work at it. So um, I guess that's why the beat writing is fun because the hours can be long, but it's like exactly what I want to be doing. You know, it's, I, I wanted to get back to beat writing if possible. And so I feel pretty lucky that I was able to, to shift from the editing side to the, to the creative writing side um, because that's, that's what I wanted to do. And so um, it's, it, be, it can be a grind, like no doubt, but it's a fun grind because you kind of look around and you're like, how many people get to do this? Um, that's how I take it, my perspective of it. Why the decision to go after the Clippers beat reporter job? Um, I always want to cover the NBA full time. I think it's a sport I probably would follow most closely, even if I weren't in writing. Um, and I, I covered college football and I love college football, but I covered the NBA playoffs, the Oregonian, um, kind of as a fill in and I really enjoyed it. It was when the Pelicans swept the Blazers and I really enjoyed the access level the NBA affords. You know, you can talk to some people up to three times a day, um, in, in an official capacity, you know, shoot around, uh, pregame locker room, postgame locker room. And so that's the, that's the really great stuff that uh, is different than college football. As much as I enjoyed it, every program in college football, they deal with their media access differently. And I've, I've appreciated the NBA has a league wide, you know, rules about this stuff. And so, uh, I just felt, I find that you can get to know people better with more access, probably not a shock there. And you can write better stories, in my opinion, by getting to know people better. Did you grow up a Blazers fan? I didn't. Um, I actually came of age kind of when Sean Kemp and Gary Payton were running amok across the Western Conference. So I, I was a huge fan of those kind of mid-90s Sonics teams and um, didn't really follow the Sonics after that. It was just kind of those couple teams that really caught my attention when we went to the finals. And I was, I was born just too late to really appreciate those early 90s um, Blazers finals teams. So those are not a part of my memory bank at all. It really wasn't until the mid-90s that I feel like I really connected with the team. I, I will say, though, one of my favorite all-time players is a Blazer. It was Arvidas Sabonis. So there is, there is like a part of me that uh, has uh, some Blazers uh, fandom tucked into it just because Sabonis was like just an incredible player from my childhood. I know you and I are about the same exact age. So how weird is it now when we were watching the NBA and these guys' kids are in the league? I mean, you look at baseball, you have Vlad Guerrero Jr., um, his kid's in the league. Dante Bichette's kid is in the league. Um, and it's, it's unbelievable. And then obviously Sabonis and, and his kid's in the league. It, it's so strange how you can you grow up, obviously, but it's not even that many years. And all of a sudden their kids are playing basketball, baseball, whatever the sport is. I think the the one uh, kind of circumstance like that that really kind of jolted me was covering college football and Ken Griffey Jr.'s son, uh, one of them, played at Arizona, played football, and they were playing the Ducks. And I remember Ken Griffey Jr. was like on the sideline for the game. And, it, and he was like a seminal player in my youth. You know, he was just the coolest athlete you could ever imagine when you're like eight years old and the 95 Mariners are, you know, shocking everyone and going to the playoffs. Um, so that was one of the ones like, I can't believe Ken Griffey Jr.'s son is old enough to play in college football right now. Um, but that was, that was kind of like a cool 
oh, walk by Ken Griffey moment. Yeah, that's wild. It's it's crazy how these kids all of a sudden, and obviously they're just. I mean, some of them are as good. Some of them are hoping to be as good, and uh, it's so strange to see them on the sidelines. I, I want to get your take on the Clippers and what to expect this season because you look at their schedule and seven of the first 10 are at home. Well, that's nice. But then you look at who they're playing and apart from Phoenix and Charlotte in game three and four, you have the Lakers, Golden State, Utah, San Antonio, Utah again, Milwaukee, Portland, and Toronto. How much are we going to find out about this team early? Because it's very possible that Paul George isn't even a part of the team for the first 10 games. Right. Yeah. I don't, I don't, um, since it's a, it's, all that likely they will be there for the season opener um, or the first maybe week or so, so possibly longer. So uh, I think people find out a good amount. Uh, you know, the players and coaches will always kind of give you a different marker for when they feel like it's a, it's a good enough litmus test for what they have. Um, some people last year said 15 games. Some people said 30. Um, it's, it kind of, it's kind of person to person. I suppose it's very subjective about when someone says, okay, I think we have, a big enough sample size to really judge a team by. But I remember last year looking at the schedule and wondering, boy, I don't know how the Clippers are going to do because their, their schedule for the first month appeared really difficult. And obviously they came out and were first in the Western Conference by the end of November. Um, so that was a sign into how good the Clippers could be. So I, I think there is something, obviously, that can be taken by looking at these first games, um, which are going to be tests, and really get a sense that even if the Clippers aren't at full strength, what they could look like, what their strengths could be, what their weaknesses could be. Um, and it's a really good slate of games to get a sense for, you know, how healthy is Kawhi? Um, does he, he said he would like to play the whole year at uh, the introductory press conference. You know, are there any games he, he takes off for load management purposes in that stretch? Because it is a very difficult way to start the season. Um, a, lot of, a lot of answers could come from that first, you know, week to 10 days. Do you believe Kawhi? Because uh, uh, are you getting the sense from talking to people around the team that they actually are okay with him possibly trying to play 75 games or so? Because it seems to me that at this point, he is somebody that was a little bit hobbled in the finals. Um, and it just seems like you want to try and sit him and make sure that he's rested for the playoffs. Right. Yeah, I mean, that that kind of – obviously, he dragged Toronto to a title. Um, but he was – he would seem to be favoring a leg. Um, I guess I'll take him at his word until the load management suggests otherwise, until we get those notices before games saying, you know what, uh, tonight's a night off for, you know, for other reasons than, um, you know, not, no specific injury, but just rest. So until that happens, um, I will be very curious to see uh, how much his goal of playing as often as possible, uh, how much of that comes to reality. Um, I, you know, after two years, um, rate of, of kind of injuries i i think that it's easy to think that he probably should be very wary of his um of his health but i also look at the western conference and i, I think about seeding a lot too because it's gonna be another nightmare in the west and you don't want to not have home court advantage in the first round i just think that it's really risky so you have to be cognizant of making sure your team is positioned to have the easiest possible route to the playoffs so that will require you know really good players to play I'm curious to get your take on how many wins this team is going to get because um, there obviously are the Vegas totals. I think they're going to win, I think, around 54 games. Um, would you think that comes in over or under based on Paul George's injury and Kawhi's possible load management? 
you know, 48 wins last year. Um, six, six more would seem to be gettable uh, with, the, with the collection of talent they have. Um, I, I think I'd put it on the over, but maybe not. I don't think I would put them above, uh, you know, 61 wins. I, don't, I think that, like you said, there's going to be some injuries that you have to monitor. There's going to be potential load management. Um, the West is difficult. It's, it's hard to win in the West. So I think they'll be a very successful team, but uh, I don't think the win total will be outrageous. So I would put it on the over, but maybe just slightly over. What seed do you think they'll get? Gosh, um, I have not really thought about this. I probably, I'll say the, my, my gut tells me either the two or the three. Okay. I, uh, I think that's reasonable. Two. I'll the two seed. Yeah, I think that's reasonable because uh, uh, I think you're really looking at, um, you're looking at Utah, Denver, the Lakers, the Clippers, and Houston as five teams I think could go for it. Um, in the regular season, but also Lakers and Clippers trying to manage themselves for the playoffs. So I think it, it'll be interesting. I can see, I think they'll probably finish close to the two or three. I come, I'm kind of in agreement with you. I don't think they'll get the one because I don't think they'll care enough about that. But I do think that home court will matter enough where they'll try and get possibly the two or the three. Um, I'll leave you with this one. Yeah. I'll leave you with this one. AP Top 25 came out today. You are an Oregon guy. Oregon sitting at number 11. Is this the year that you guys are finally able to get to uh, to get to and win the national championship behind a fella? And correct me if I'm wrong. Is it Justin Herbert? Is that how you pronounce his last name? Yeah, he's he's from Eugene. He's a local guy. Um, I don't think so. I, I think that uh, the you talked about early early games being a litmus test for the Clippers. Obviously, uh, Oregon plays Auburn in the first game. That will be. Uh, you know, you can recover from early losses. Clearly, Ohio State did it in 2015. They won a title, uh, 2014-15 season. Um, but I, I just, I just don't know. I think that um, I haven't now. Ever since I stopped covering the team, I haven't looked at the depth chart like every day. So I'm actually kind of lost touch a little bit with some of their strengths and weaknesses. But um, I, I just, I'm not, I'm not really all the way sold that they can go that far to win a title. Um, I don't even know about a, a Pac-12 title, um, but I do think that they should be expected to be in the Pac-12 North title discussion. If they, if they aren't, then I think that if they aren't one or two in the North, and I think that would be considered a disappointing season just because they do have a lot of talent. Yeah. And Herbert could be a top five pick in the draft next year. Yeah, they were talking about Herbert possibly being number one or number two pick uh, in the past draft, and that didn't end up happening. He stayed, and so I'll be curious to see where he lands. I'm a USC guy, so uh, not being in the top 25, I think it's the first time since 2001. Um, it's a depressing day. It really is a depressing day, but I'll, uh, I'll let you enjoy your Oregon Ducks for now, and uh, we'll see how far they go. He is uh, Andrew Greif. You can follow him on Twitter, at Andrew Greif. That last name is spelled G-R-E-I-F, um, and you can follow him at the LA Times and read his stuff. Anywhere else that uh, people should follow you or read your stuff? Um, no, you got it right, man. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Andrew, thanks for joining the Hoopball Clippers podcast. All right, hope you enjoyed that podcast uh, with Andrew. We will have him on throughout the season. No doubt about that. He is a tremendous guy, very nice fella, um, obviously knows his basketball, and a guy that was a tremendous writer for the Oregonian. Um, as mentioned earlier, he won 
that Oregon Sports Writer of the Year Award in 2017 and now doing a tremendous job at the LA Times. So read his stuff there. We'll have him on throughout the season. Make sure you follow us. I'm at BD Marcus, and you can follow the Hoopball Fantasy handle at Hoopball Fantasy. At Hoopball Clips is where you'll find the Hoopball Clippers content as well. A big thank you to everybody for listening to this podcast. Hope you're able to rate, subscribe on iTunes, leave a review. It means a lot. It helps us out a lot. Um, we'll be having another podcast soon. Uh, not entirely sure when we're going to record. Hoping to record later this week. If we don't record later this week, it'll be early next week. Um, obviously, lots of Clippers news still coming out with the uh, Sam Cassell, or not Sam Cassell, with the Tyron Lou news. Um, hopefully going to drop soon. The Brian Seaman and Chauncey Billups news hopefully going to drop officially soon, although Andrew does think it'll probably be a little bit later on based on when Everything got confirmed last year in September, so you never know what's going to happen with the Clippers. But we'll be here all season, obviously all off-season as well. I'm Brandon Marcus saying so long. Have a fantastic rest of your week, everybody. This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.